Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tonight, I continue the story, Journey to the Center of the Earth, by Jules Verne. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you. A story. Chapter 14 But Arctics can be inhospitable too. Stapi is a village consisting of about 30 huts built of lava at the south side of the base of the volcano. It extends along the inner edge of a small fjord enclosed between basaltic walls of the strangest construction. Basalt is a brownish rock of igneous origin. It assumes regular forms, the arrangement of which is often very surprising. Here, nature had done her work geometrically, with square and compass and plummet. Everywhere else, her art consists alone in throwing down huge masses together in disorder. You see cones imperfectly formed, irregular pyramids with a fantastic disarrangement of lines. But here as if to exhibit an example of regularity, though in advance of the very earliest architects, she has created a severely simple order of architecture, never surpassed either by the splendors of Babylon or the wonders of Greece. I had heard of the giant's causeway in Ireland, 
and Fingal's Cave in Staffa, one of the Hebrides, but I'd never yet seen basaltic formation. At Stapi, I beheld this phenomenon in all its beauty. The wall that confined the fjord, like all the coast of the peninsula, was composed of a series of vertical columns 30 feet high. These straight shafts of fair proportions supported an architrave of horizontal slabs, the overhanging portion of which formed a semi-arch over the sea. At intervals, under this natural shelter, there spread out vaulted entrances in beautiful curves, into which the waves came dashing with foam and spray. A few shafts of basalt, torn from their hold by the fury of tempests, lay along the soil like the remains of an ancient temple, in ruins forever fresh, and over which centuries passed without leaving a trace of age upon them. This was our last stage upon the earth. Hans had exhibited great intelligence, and it gave me some little comfort to think then that he was not going to leave us. On arriving at the door of the rector's house, which was not different from the others, I saw a man shoeing a horse, hammer in hand, and with a leathern apron on. Sialvertu, said the hunter. Gudag, said the blacksmith in good Danish. Shirkohirde, said Hans, turning round to my uncle. The rector, repeated the professor. It seems, Axel, that this good man is the rector. Our guide, in the meanwhile, was making the rector aware of the situation, when the latter, suspending his labours for a moment, uttered a sound no doubt understood between horses and farriers, and immediately a tall and ugly woman appeared from the hut. She must have been six feet at the least. I was in great alarm lest she should treat me to the Icelandic kiss, but there was no occasion to fear, nor did she do the honours at all too gracefully. The visitor's room seemed to me the worst in the whole cabin. It was close, dirty, and evil-smelling, but we had to be content. The rector did not go in for antique hospitality. Very far from it. Before the day was over, I saw that we had to do with a blacksmith, a fisherman, a hunter, a joiner, but not at all with a minister of the gospel. To be sure, it was a weekday. Perhaps on a Sunday he made amends. I don't mean to say anything against these poor priests, who, after all, are very wretched. They receive from the Danish government a ridiculously small pittance, and they get from the parish the fourth part of the tithe, which does not come to 60 marks a year, about four pounds, hence the necessity to work for their livelihood. But after fishing, hunting, and shoeing horses for any length of time, one soon gets in the ways and manners of fishermen, hunters, and farriers, and other rather rude and uncultivated people. And that evening, I found that temperance was not among the virtues that distinguished my host. My uncle soon discovered what sort of man he had to do with. Instead of a good and learned man, he found a rude and coarse peasant. He therefore resolved to commence the grand expedition at once and to leave this inhospitable parsonage. He cared nothing about fatigue and resolved to spend some days upon the mountain. The preparations for our departure were therefore made the very day after our arrival at Stapi. Hans hired the services of three Icelanders to do the duty of the horses in the transport of the burdens. But as soon as we had arrived at the crater, these natives were to turn back and leave us to our own devices. This was to be clearly understood. My uncle now took the opportunity to explain to Hans 
that it was his intention to explore the interior of the volcano to its furthest limits. Hans merely nodded. There or elsewhere, down in the bowels of the earth or anywhere on the surface, all was alike to him. For my own part, the incidents of the journey had hitherto kept me amused and made me forgetful of coming evils. But now my fears again were beginning to get the better of me. But what could I do? The place to resist the professor would have been Hamburg, not the foot of Snaefell. One thought above all others harassed and alarmed me. It was one calculated to shake firmer nerves than mine. Now, thought I, here we are, about to climb Snaefell. Very good. We will explore the crater. Very good, too. Others have done as much without dying for it. But that is not all. If there is a way to penetrate into the very bowels of the island, if that ill-advised Sacknesum has told a true tale, we shall lose our way amid the deep subterranean passages of this volcano. Now there is no proof that Snaefell is extinct. Who can assure us that an eruption is not brewing at this very moment? Does it follow that because the monster has slept since 1229, he must therefore never awake again? And if he wakes up presently, where shall we be? It was worthwhile debating this question, and I did debate it. I could not sleep for dreaming about eruptions. Now the part of ejected scoriae and ashes seemed to my mind a very rough one to act. So at last, when I could hold out no longer, I resolved to lay the case before my uncle as prudently and as cautiously as possible, just under the form of an almost impossible hypothesis. I went to him. I communicated my fears to him and drew back a step to give him room for the explosion which I knew must follow. But I was mistaken. I was thinking of that, he replied, with great simplicity. What could those words mean? Was he actually going to listen to reason? Was he contemplating the abandonment of his plans? This was too good to be true. After a few moments' silence, during which I dared not question him, he resumed. I was thinking of that. Ever since we arrived at Stapi, I have been occupied with the important question you have just opened, for we must not be guilty of imprudence. No, indeed, I replied with forcible emphasis. For six hundred years, Snaefell has been dumb, but he may speak again. Now eruptions are always preceded by certain well-known phenomena. I have therefore examined the natives, I have studied external appearances, and I can assure you, Axel, that there will be no eruption. At this positive affirmation, I stood amazed and speechless. You don't doubt my word, said my uncle. Well, follow me. I obeyed like an automaton. Coming out for the priest's house, the professor took a straight road which, through an opening in the basaltic wall, led away from the sea. We were soon in the open country, if one may give that name to a vast extent of mounds of volcanic products. This tract seemed crushed under a rain of enormous ejected rocks of trap, basalt, granite, and all kinds of igneous rocks. Here and there I could see puffs and jets of steam curling up into the air, called in Icelandic, Rekir, issuing from thermal springs and indicating by their motion the volcanic energy underneath. This seemed to justify my fears. But I fell from the height of my newborn hopes when my uncle said, you see all these volumes of steam, Axel? Well, they demonstrate that we have nothing to fear from the fury of volcanic eruption. Am I to believe that? I cried. 
Understand this clearly, added the professor. At the approach of an eruption, these jets would redouble their activity, but disappear altogether during the period of the eruption. For the elastic fluids, being no longer under pressure, go off by way of the crater instead of escaping by their usual passages through the fissures in the soil. Therefore, if these vapors remain in their usual condition, if they display no augmentation of force, and if you add to this the observation that the wind and rain are not ceasing and being replaced by a still and heavy atmosphere, you may affirm that no eruption is preparing. But, no more, that is sufficient. When science has uttered her voice, let babblers hold their peace. I returned to the parsonage, very crestfallen. My uncles had beaten me with the weapons of science. Still, I had one hope left. And this was, that when we had reached the bottom of the crater, it would be impossible, for want of a passage, to go deeper, in spite of all the Sacknersums in Iceland. I spent that whole night, in one constant nightmare, in the heart of a volcano, and from the deepest depths of the earth, I saw myself tossed up among the interplanetary spaces under the form of an eruptive rock. The next day, June 23rd, Hans was awaiting us with his companions, carrying provisions, tools, and instruments. Two iron-pointed sticks, two rifles, and two shot belts were for my uncle and myself. Hans, as a cautious man, had added to our luggage a leathern bottle full of water, which, with that already in our flasks, would ensure us a supply of water for eight days. It was nine in the morning. The priest and his tall Megara were awaiting us at the door. We supposed they were standing there to bid us a kind farewell. But the farewell was put in the unexpected form of a heavy bill, in which everything was charged, even to the very air we breathed in the pastoral house, infected as it was. This worthy couple was fleecing us, just as a Swiss innkeeper might have done, and estimated their imperfect hospitality at the highest price. My uncle paid without a remark. A man who is starting for the centre of the earth need not be particular about a few rix dollars. This point being settled, Hans gave the signal, and we soon left Stapi behind us. Chapter 15 Snaefell at last. Snaefell is 5,000 feet high. Its double cone forms the limit of a trachytic belt that stands out distinctly in the mountain system of the island. From our starting point, we can see the two peaks boldly projected against the dark grey sky. I could see an enormous cap of snow coming low down upon the giant's brow. We walked in single file, headed by the hunter, who ascended by narrow tracks where two could not have gone abreast. There was therefore no room for conversation. After we passed the basaltic wall of the fjord at Stapi, we passed over a vegetable fibrous peat bog left from the ancient vegetation of this peninsula. The vast quantity of this unworked fuel would be sufficient to warm the whole population of Iceland for a century. This vast turbary, measured from the bottom of certain ravines, had in many places a depth of 70 feet, 
and presented layers of carbonized remains of vegetation, alternating with thinner layers of tufaceous pumice. As a true nephew of the Professor Liedenbrock, and in spite of my dismal prospects, I could not help observing with interest the mineralogical curiosities that lay about me as in a vast museum, and I constructed for myself a complete geological account of Iceland. This most curious island has evidently been projected from the bottom of the sea at a comparatively recent date. Possibly it may still be subject to gradual elevation. If this is the case, its origin may well be attributed to subterranean fires. Therefore, in this case, the theory of Sir Humphrey Davy, Satnusson's document, and my uncle's theories would all go off in smoke. This hypothesis led me to examine with more attention the appearance of the surface, and I soon arrived at a conclusion as to the nature of the forces that presided at its birth. Iceland, which is entirely devoid of alluvial soil, is wholly composed of volcanic tufa, that is to say, an agglomeration of porous rocks and stones. Before the volcanoes broke out, it consisted of trap rocks slowly upraised to the level of the sea by the action of central forces. The internal fires had not yet forced their way through. But at a later period, a wide chasm formed diagonally from southwest to northeast, through which was gradually forced out the trachyte that was to form a mountain chain. No violence accompanied this change. The matter thrown out was in vast quantities, and the liquid material oozing out from the abysses of the earth slowly spread in extensive plains or in hillocky masses. To this period belonged the felspar, cyanites, and porphyries. But with the help of this outflow, the thickness of the crust of the island increased materially, and therefore also its powers of resistance. It may easily be conceived what vast quantities of elastic gases, what masses of molten matter accumulated beneath its solid surface, while no exit was practicable after the cooling of the trachytic crust. Therefore, a time would come when the elastic and explosive forces of the imprisoned gases would upheave this ponderous cover and drive out for themselves openings through tall chimneys. Hence then the volcano would distend and lift up the crust, and then burst through a crater suddenly formed at the summit or thinnest part of the volcano. To the eruption succeeded other volcanic phenomena. Through the outlets now made, first escaped the ejected basalt, of which the plain we just left presented such marvellous specimens. We were moving over grey rocks of dense and massive formation, which in cooling had formed into hexagonal prisms. Everywhere around us we saw truncated cones, formerly so many fiery mouths. After the exhaustion of the basalt, the volcano, the power of which grew by the extinction of the lesser craters, supplied an egress to lava, ashes, and scoriae of which I could see lengthened screes streaming down the sides of the mountain like flowing hair. Such was the succession of phenomena that produced Iceland, all arising from the action of internal fire, and to suppose that the mass within did not still exist in the state of liquid incandescence was absurd, and nothing could surpass the absurdity of fancying that it was possible to reach the Earth's centre. So I felt a little comforted, 
as we advanced to the assault of Snaefell. The way was growing more and more arduous, the ascent steeper and steeper. The loose fragments of rock trembled beneath us, and the utmost care was needed to avoid dangerous falls. Hans went on as quietly as if he were on level ground. Sometimes he disappeared altogether behind the huge blocks. Then a shrill whistle would direct us on our way to him. Sometimes he would halt, pick up a few bits of stone, build them up into a recognizable form, and thus made landmarks to guide us in our way back. A very wise precaution in itself, but as things turned out, quite useless. Three hours' fatiguing march had only brought us to the base of the mountain. Their hands bid us come to a halt, and a hasty breakfast was served out. My uncle swallowed two mouthfuls at a time to get on faster. But whether he liked it or not, this was a rest as well as a breakfast hour, and he had to wait till it pleased our guide to move on, which came to pass in an hour. The three Icelanders, just as taciturn as their comrade the hunter, never spoke and ate their breakfasts in silence. We were now beginning to scale the steep sides of Snaefell. Its snowy summit, by an optical illusion not infrequent in mountains, seemed close to us, and yet how many weary hours it took to reach it. The stones, adhering by no soil or fibrous roots of vegetation, rolled away from under our feet and rushed down the precipice below with the swiftness of an avalanche. At some places, the flanks of the mountain formed an angle with the horizon of at least 36 degrees. It was impossible to climb them, and these stony cliffs had to be tacked round, not without great difficulty. Then we helped each other with our sticks. I must admit that my uncle kept as close to me as he could. He never lost sight of me, and in many straits his arm furnished me with a powerful support. He himself seemed to possess an instinct for equilibrium, for he never stumbled. The Icelanders, though burdened with our loads, climbed with the agility of mountaineers. To judge by the distant appearance of the summit of Snaefell, it would have seemed too steep to ascend on our side. Fortunately, after an hour of fatigue and athletic exercises, in the midst of the vast surface of snow, presented by the hollow between the two peaks, a kind of staircase appeared unexpectedly that greatly facilitated our ascent. It was formed by one of those torrents of stones flung up by the eruptions called Sting by the Icelanders. If this torrent had not been arrested in its fall by the formation of the sides of the mountain, it would have gone on to the sea and formed more islands. Such as it was, it did us good service. The steepness increased, but these stone steps allowed us to rise with facility, and even with such rapidity, that having rested for a moment while my companions continued their ascent, I perceived them already reduced by distance to microscopic dimensions. At seven, we had ascended the two thousand steps of this grand staircase, and we had attained a bulge in the mountain, a kind of bed on which rested the cone proper of the crater. Three thousand two hundred feet below us stretched the sea. We had passed the limit of perpetual snow, which on account of the moisture of the climate is at a greater elevation in Iceland than the high latitude would give reason to suppose. The cold was excessively keen, the wind was blowing violently, I was exhausted, 
The professor saw that my limbs were refusing to perform their office, and in spite of his impatience, he decided on stopping. He therefore spoke to the hunter, who shook his head, saying, Ofanfor. It seems we must go higher, said my uncle. Then he asked Hans for his reason. Mistour, replied the guide. Ja, Mistour, said one of the Icelanders, in a tone of alarm. What does that word mean? I asked uneasily. Look, said my uncle. I looked down upon the plain. An immense column of pulverized pumice, sand, and dust was rising with a whirling circular motion like a water spout. The wind was lashing it onto that side of Snaefell where we were holding on. This dense veil hung across the sun through a deep shadow over the mountain. If that huge revolving pillar sloped down, it would involve us in its whirling eddies. This phenomenon, which is not infrequent when the wind blows from the glaciers, is called in Icelandic mistur. Hastig, hastig, cried our guide. Without knowing Danish, I understood at once that we must follow Hans at the top of our speed. He began to circle round the cone of the crater, but in a diagonal direction, so as to facilitate our progress. Presently, the dust storm fell upon the mountain, which quivered under the shock. The loose stones, caught with the irresistible blasts of wind, flew about in a perfect hail, as in an eruption. Happily, we were on the opposite side and sheltered from all harm. But for the precaution of our guide, our mangled bodies, torn and pounded into fragments, would have been carried afar like the ruins hurled along by some unknown meteor. Yet Hans did not think it prudent to spend the night upon the sides of the cone. We continued our zigzag climb. The fifteen hundred remaining feet took us five hours to clear. The circuitous route, the diagonal and the countermarches, must have measured at least three leagues. I could stand it no longer. I was yielding to the effects of hunger and cold. The rarefied air scarcely gave play to the action of my lungs. At last, at eleven in the sunlight night, the summit of Snaefell was reached, and before going in for shelter into the crate, I had time to observe the midnight sun at his lowest point, gilding with his pale rays the island that slept at my feet. Chapter 16 Boldly Down the Crater Supper was rapidly devoured, and the little company housed themselves as best they could. The bed was hard, the shelter not very substantial, and our position an anxious one, at five thousand feet above sea level. Yet I slept particularly well. It was one of the best nights I had ever had, and I did not even dream. Next morning we awoke half frozen by the sharp, keen air, but with the light of a splendid sun. I rose from my granite bed and went out to enjoy the magnificent spectacle that lay unrolled before me. I stood on the very summit of the southernmost of Snaefell's peaks. The range of the eye extended over the whole island. By an optical law that obtains at all great heights, the shores seemed raised and the center depressed. It seemed as if one of Helbesmer's raised maps lay at my feet. I could see deep valleys intersecting each other in every direction, precipices like low walls, lakes reduced to ponds, rivers abbreviated into streams. 
On my right were numberless glaciers and innumerable peaks, some plumed with feathery clouds of smoke. The undulating surface of these endless mountains, crested with sheets of snow, reminded one of a stormy sea. If I looked westward, there the ocean lay spread out in all its magnificence, like a mere continuation of those flock-like summits. The eye could hardly tell where the snowy ridges ended and the foaming waves began. I was thus steeped in the marvelous ecstasy that all high summits develop in the mind, and now without giddiness, for I was beginning to be accustomed to these sublime aspects of nature. My dazzled eyes were bathed in the bright flood of the solar rays. I was forgetting where and who I was to live a life of elves and sylphs, the fanciful creation of Scandinavian superstitions. I felt intoxicated with the sublime pleasure of lofty elevations, without thinking of the profound abysses into which I was shortly to be plunged. But I was brought back to the realities of things by the arrival of Hans and the professor who joined me on the summit. My uncle pointed out to me, in the far west, a light, steam or mist, a semblance of land which bounded the distant horizon of waters. Greenland, said he. Greenland? I cried. Yes, we are only thirty-five leagues from it, and during thaws the white bears, borne by the ice fields from the north, are carried even into Iceland. But never mind that. Here we are at the top of Snæfell, and here are two peaks, one north and one south. Hans will tell us the name of that on which we are now standing. The question being put, Hans replied, Scotaris. My uncle shot a triumphant glance at me. Now, for the crater, he cried. The crater at Snæfell resembled an inverted cone, the opening of which might be half a league in diameter. Its depth appeared to be about 2,000 feet. Imagine the aspect of such a reservoir, brim full and running over with liquid fire amid the rolling thunder. The bottom of the funnel was about 200 feet in circuit, so that the gentle slope allowed its lower brim to be reached without much difficulty. Involuntarily, I compared the whole crater to an enormous erected mortar, and the comparison put me in a terrible fright. What madness, I thought, to go down into a mortar, perhaps a loaded mortar, to be shot up into the air at a moment's notice. But I did not try to back out of it. Hans, with perfect coolness, resumed the lead, and I followed him without a word. In order to facilitate the descent, Hans wound his way down the cone by a spiral path. Our route lay amid eruptive rocks, some of which, shaken out of their loosened beds, rushed bounding down the abyss, and in their fall awoke echoes remarkable for their loud and well-defined sharpness. In certain parts of the cone there were glaciers. Here Hans advanced only with extreme precaution, sounding his way with his iron-pointed pole to discover any crevasses in it. At particularly dubious passages, we were obliged to connect ourselves with each other by a long cord, in order that any man who missed his footing might be held up by his companions. This solid formation was prudent, but did not remove all danger. Yet, notwithstanding the difficulties of the descent, down steeps unknown to the guide, the journey was accomplished without accidents, except the loss of a coil of rope which escaped the hands of an Icelander and took the shortest way to the bottom of the abyss. At midday we arrived. 
I raised my head and saw straight above me the upper aperture of the cone, framing a bit of sky of very small circumference, but almost perfectly round. Just upon the edge appeared the snowy peak of Saris, standing out sharp and clear against endless space. At the bottom of the crater were three chimneys, through which, in its eruptions, Snaefell had driven forth fire and lava from its central furnace. Each of these chimneys was a hundred feet in diameter. They gaped before us right in our path. I had not the courage to look down either of them, but Professor Liedenbrock had hastily surveyed all three. He was panting, running from one to the other, gesticulating, and uttering incoherent expressions. Hans and his comrades, seated upon loose lava rocks, looked at him with as much wonder as they knew how to express, and perhaps taking him for an escaped lunatic. Suddenly, my uncle uttered a cry. I thought his foot must have slipped, and that he had fallen down one of the holes. But no, I saw him, with arms outstretched and legs straddling wide apart before a granite rock that stood in the center of the crater, just like a pedestal made ready to receive a statue of Pluto. He stood like a man stupefied, but the stupefaction soon gave way to delirious rapture. Axel, Axel, he cried, come, come. I ran. Hans and the Icelanders never stirred. Look, cried the professor. And sharing his astonishment, but I think not his joy, I read on the western face of the block, in runic characters half mouldered away with the lapses of age, this thrice accursed name. Arnus Sacknusum, replied my uncle. Do you yet doubt? I made no answer, and returned in silence to my lava seat in a state of utter speechless consternation. Hair was crushing evidence. How long I remained plunged in agonizing reflections I cannot tell. All that I know is that on raising my head again, I saw only my uncle and Hans at the bottom of the crater. The Icelanders had been dismissed, and they were now descending the outer slopes of Snaefell to return to Stapi. Hans slept peaceably at the foot of a rock in a lava bed, where he had found a suitable couch for himself. But my uncle was pacing round the bottom of the crater like a wild beast in a cage. I had neither the wish nor the strength to rise, and following the guide's example, I went off into an unhappy slumber, fancying I could hear ominous noises or feel tremblings within the recesses of the mountain. Thus, the first night in the crater passed away. The next morning, a grey, heavy, cloudy sky seemed to droop over the summit of the cone. I did not know this first from the appearances of nature but I found it out by my uncle's impetuous wrath. I soon found out the cause, and hope dawned again in my heart. For this reason, of the three ways open before us, one had been taken by Sacknesum. The indications of the learned Icelander, hinted at in the cryptogram, pointed to this fact that the shadow of Scartavus came to touch that particular way during the latter days of the month of June. That sharp peak might hence be considered as the gnomon of a vast sundial, the shadow projected from which on a certain day would point out the road to the centre of the earth. Now, no sun, no shadow, and therefore no guide. 
Here was June 25th. If the sun was clouded for six days, we must postpone our visit till next year. My limited powers of description would fail were I to attempt a picture of the professor's angry impatience. The day wore on, and no shadow came to lay itself along the bottom of the crater. Hans did not move from the spot he had selected, yet he must be asking himself what we were waiting for, if he asked himself anything at all. My uncle spoke not a word to me. His gaze, ever directed upwards, was lost in the grey and misty space beyond. On the 26th, nothing yet. Rain mingled with snow was falling all day long. Hans built a hut of pieces of lava. I felt a malicious pleasure in watching the thousand rills and cascades that came tumbling down the sides of the cone and the deafening continuous din awakened by every stone against which they bounded. My uncle's rage knew no bounds. It was enough to irritate a meeker man than he, for it was truly to sink just within reach of the port. But heaven never sends unmixed grief, and for Professor Liedenbrock there was a satisfaction in store proportioned to his desperate anxieties. The next day, the sky was again overcast, but on the 29th of June, the last day but one of the month, with the change of the moon came a change of weather. The sun poured a flood of light down the crater. Every hillock, every rock and stone, every projecting surface had its share of the beaming torrent, and it threw its shadow on the ground. Among them all, Scartarus laid down his sharp-pointed angular shadow, which began to move slowly in the opposite direction to that of the radiant orb. My uncle turned too and followed it. At noon, being at its least extent, it came and softly fell upon the edge of the middle chimney. There it is, there it is, shouted the professor. Now for the centre of the globe, he added in Danish. I looked at Hans to hear what he would say. For root, was his tranquil answer. Forward, replied my uncle. It was thirteen minutes past one. Chapter 17 Vertical Descent Now began a real journey. Hitherto our toil had overcome all difficulties. Now difficulties would spring up at every step. I had not yet ventured to look down the bottomless pit into which I was about to take a plunge. The supreme hour had come. I might now either share in the enterprise or refuse to move forward. But I was ashamed to recoil in the presence of the hunter. Hans accepted the enterprise with such calmness, such indifference, such perfect disregard of any possible danger, that I blushed at the idea of being less brave than he. If I had been alone, I might have once more tried the effect of argument, but in the presence of the guide I held my peace. My heart flew back to my sweet Verlandaise, and I approached the central chimney. I've already mentioned that it was a hundred feet in diameter and three hundred feet round. I bent over a projecting rock and gazed down. My hair stood on end with terror. The bewildering feeling of acuity laid hold upon me. I felt my center of gravity shifting its place and giddiness mounting into my brain like drunkenness. There's nothing more treacherous than this attraction down deep abysses. 
I was just about to drop down when a hand laid hold of me. It was that of Hans. I suppose I had not taken as many lessons on golf exploration as I ought to have done in the Felserkirke at Copenhagen. But however short was my examination of this well, I had taken some account of its conformation. Its almost perpendicular walls were bristling with innumerable projections that would facilitate the descent. But if there was no want of steps, still, there was no rail. A rope fastened to the edge of the aperture might have helped us down, but how were we to unfasten it when we arrived at the other end? My uncle employed a very simple expedient to obviate this difficulty. He uncoiled a cord of the thickness of a finger and 400 feet long. First he dropped half of it down, then he passed it round a lava block that projected conveniently and threw the other half down the chimney. Each of us could then descend by holding with the hand both halves of the rope, which would not be able to unroll itself from its hold. When 200 feet down, it would be easy to get possession of the whole of the rope by letting one end go and pulling down by the other. Then the exercise would go on again ad infinitum. Now, said my uncle, after having completed these preparations, now let us look to our loads. I will divide them into three lots. Each of us will strap one upon his back. I mean only fragile articles. Of course, we were not included under that head. Hans, said he, will take charge of the tools and a portion of the provisions. You, Axel, will take another third of the provisions and the arms, and I will take the rest of the provisions and the delicate instruments. But, said I, the clothes and that mass of ladders and ropes, what is to become of them? They will go down by themselves. How so? I asked. You will see presently. My uncle was always willing to employ magnificent resources. Obeying orders, Hans tied all the non-fragile articles in one bundle, corded them firmly, and sent them bodily down the gulf before us. I listened to the dull thuds of the descending bale. My uncle, leaning over the abyss, followed the descent of the luggage with a satisfied nod, and only rose erect when he had quite lost sight of it. Very well, now it is our turn. Now I ask any sensible man if it was possible to hear those words without a shudder. The professor fastened his package of instruments upon his shoulders. Hans took the tools, I took the arms, and the descent commenced in the following order. Hans, my uncle, and myself. It was effected in profound silence, broken only by the descent of loosened stones down the dark gulf. I dropped, as it were, frantically clutching the double cord with one hand and buttressing myself from the wall with the other by means of my stick. One idea overpowered me almost, fear lest the rock should give way from which I was hanging. This cord seemed a fragile thing for three persons to be suspended from. I made as little use of it as possible, performing wonderful feats of equilibrium upon the lava projections that my foot seemed to catch hold of like a hand. When one of these slippery steps shook under the heavier form of Hans, he said in a tranquil voice, Giftak. Attention repeated my uncle. In half an hour we were standing upon the surface of a rock jammed in across the chimney from one side to the other. Hans pulled the rope by one of its ends, the other rose in the air. After passing the higher rock it came down again, 
bringing with it a rather dangerous shower of bits of stone and lava. Leaning over the edge of our narrow standing ground, I observed that the bottom of the hole was still invisible. The same maneuver was repeated with the cord, and half an hour after we had descended another 200 feet. I don't suppose the maddest geologist under such circumstances would have studied the nature of the rocks that we were passing. I am sure I did trouble my head about them. Pliocene, Miocene, Eocene, Cretaceous, Jurassic, Triassic, Permian, Carboniferous, Devonian, Silurian, or Primitive, was all one to me. But the professor, no doubt, was pursuing his observations or taking notes, for in one of our halts, he said to me, The further I go, the more confidence I feel. The order of these volcanic formations affords the strongest confirmation to the theories of Davy. We are now among the primitive rocks upon which the chemical operations took place that are produced by the contact of elementary bases of metals with water. I repudiate the notion of central heat altogether. We shall see further proof of that very soon. No variation, always the same conclusion. Of course, I was not inclined to argue. My silence was taken for consent, and the descent went on. Another three hours and I saw no bottom to the chimney yet. When I lifted my head, I perceived the gradual contraction of its aperture. Its walls, by a gentle incline, were drawing closer to each other, and it was beginning to grow darker. Still, we kept descending. It seemed to me that the falling stones were meeting with an earlier resistance, and that the concussion gave a more abrupt and deadened sound. As I had taken care to keep an exact account of our maneuvers with the rope, which I knew that we had repeated fourteen times, each descent occupying half an hour, the conclusion was easy that we had been seven hours plus fourteen quarters of rest, making ten hours and a half. We had started at one. It must therefore now be eleven o'clock, and the depth to which we had descended was fourteen times two hundred feet, or two thousand eight hundred feet. At this moment I heard the voice of Hans. Halt, he cried. I stopped short, just as I was going to place my feet upon my uncle's head. We are there, he cried. Where, said I, stepping near to him. At the bottom of the perpendicular chimney, he answered. Is there no way further? Yes. There is a sort of passage that inclines to the right. We shall see about that tomorrow. Let us have our supper and go to sleep. The darkness was not yet complete. The provision case was opened, we refreshed ourselves, and went to sleep as well as we could upon a bed of stones and lava fragments. When laying on my back, I opened my eyes and saw a bright, sparkling point of light at the extremity of the gigantic tube, 3,000 feet long, now a vast telescope. It was a star that, seen from this depth, had lost all its scintillation, and that by my computation should be 46 Ursa Minor. Then I fell fast asleep. Good night.